This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. A lot of times when we study history, you know, we study the hard facts around politics and economics, but I mean, equally important, if not more important, are the emotions of the people because emotions precede action and even thoughts sometimes. And sometimes thought precedes emotion, but they definitely work together. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Shinho Piper Ferreira, a musician, actor, playwright, screenwriter, and former police officer. He has worn many hats, but Piper's work has always revolved around the relationship between community and policing. Piper, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so grateful to have heard you speak in LA recently because your backstory is extraordinary. And the more I've learned about it since then, the luckier I feel to have you on this show. But before I give too much away, can you share with this audience how you went from growing up in West Oakland to becoming a deputy sheriff? Oh, wow. Well, that's a long, long, long story. But I think that, you know, maybe the short version of it is, you know, my mother just always instilled in us that we were the architects of our own destiny. And, and we could choose to be what we wanted to be. And, and we were ultimately responsible for directing our own lives. So that's the short version of it. The long version of it is, you know, I had a friend that was killed by the police and uh, he was a guy that uh, he was a very close friend. And I come from a, a background of, you know, studying uh, black movements in America. My degree is in black studies from San Francisco state. Um, you know, I'm an artist as well. I wrote songs. I, we gathered, you know, there were uh, protests for various incidents that were happening in Oakland and around the country. But ultimately, I decided that there was one person that decided whether or not to pull the trigger, and that was the police officer. So just in, in taking control of, of my own destiny and trying to be the one that's making the decisions as opposed to the one that's on the sideline, I decided to go in. And I figured out that I could pay my own way through the academy. And it cost about $5,000. And uh, my wife and I put the money down and I went in. And I ended up working in law enforcement for about eight years. And then I resigned to get back to the arts and to tell the story from a more informed perspective, talk about what I've learned, and the trials and tribulations, the pain, and, and, and the joys and the victories. So that's what I'm doing now. I want to dive deep into that and especially get your perspective on what it's like being on the, the front lines of law enforcement these days. But before we do, can you tell me one of your favorite things about your friend, Jihad Akbar? Something funny, something poignant. What do you, what do you remember about him that, that brings you joy? You know, Jihad was, he was the most disciplined of us 
He was hardcore. And, you know, I have to put this out there. A lot of, uh, you know, you get a lot of people in academia and just just adults in general. This, You know, they tell the kids, you know, there's a one in a million chance that you're going to go to the NFL or there's one in a million chance that you're going to make it as an artist. I went to school with five guys that went to the NFL. (laughs) Five. And our team wasn't amazing. Like we had a losing record most of those years. But one has three Super Bowl rings. And Jihad was, he was the most disciplined of us. He was the most aggressive. He was the loudest. He was the most masculine. And then later in life, we find out he's gay. <laughs> so it's like that came out of nowhere. Like we we had no idea that that was coming. But, you know, he would be the one to wake us up in the morning on a Saturday when we think we get a chance to sleep in. And he's like, you know, we need to be practicing. We need to be working. Uh, you know, he he's the one that recommended books to us. You know, this is what you need to be reading. He was the most politically active. And, and he was also very rebellious. That guy ended up getting a scholarship to UC Berkeley. And I believe he majored in political science. And slowly, you know, he just began to, you know, come off the rails. Uh, He started uh, dabbling in in drug use. And I think that he was really conflicted uh, with his, you know, past life, hiding his sexuality. And then, you know, the new circles that he was developing and the new communities he was becoming a part of. And you know, when he finally came out and, and began to tell us, you know, I kind of tried to serve as a bridge between, you know, the old friends and, and the new friends and come just be someone that he could talk to. This was in the 90s. So this was a long time ago. It was a completely different world. And, you know, ultimately, we buried one of our friends who was in a car accident. And a month later, you know, we were burying him got a call in the middle of the night that the police had killed him. And I remember the article that was written in the newspaper was something to the effect of, you know, homeless Oakland man shouting racial slurs gets killed by police. You know, they didn't know how sarcastic he was. They didn't know how conflicted he was, you know, and I just imagine my black gay friend uh, yelling out all the things that the world called him. And that's what they put in the newspaper. I didn't have any control over what the journalist wrote. I didn't have any control over the cop that pulled the trigger. You know, I initially put that pain into my music and ended up touring the world with my band. I tried what I could according to the rules that I had known growing up and according to my values and until it became apparent that I needed to try something else. I bet you never imagined you'd be a deputy sheriff one day, but I, I do see this quote from you that really jumps out at me. You you said in a recent interview that your mother was adamant in proving to her children that the life you saw outside your front door was not normal. This is not the normal state of Black people. And she taught me that I could do anything that I put my mind to, period. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was her. And we had what I believe is the oldest Black bookstore in the country, Marcus Bookstore not far from us. It was maybe five minutes away. And, you know, uh, (laughs) we had prostitutes on our corner. The drug dealers made a lot of money in the 1980s, a lot of money in the 1980s. I remember guys wrecking their cars and showing up a couple hours later with a new one. And I was just a little kid. And these guys were like the superstars of the community, but they would die. 
you know, and they would go to jail. And uh, the violence was just, now that I look back on it, it was mind blowing. But growing up in it, it seemed normal. I got robbed at gunpoint when I was 13 years old by a grown man. My friend and I had saved our lunch money all week to take some girls to the movies. (laughs) We caught the bus and we had to transfer buses and we got robbed. Like he robbed us of our lunch money. I was 13 years old. But my mother, when she saw what was happening, my next door neighbor had a baby in the ninth grade. The girl that lived next door to him, she got murdered in the car with her boyfriend. Guy lived a couple of doors down. He was robbing banks. He went to the penitentiary and she brought home all these books and demanded that we read them. She wrote all our names in the books and she would just discuss the books with us. What's outside is not normal. This is a, a downtime in the history of our people. Like we come from greatness, we will return to greatness and you will respond to your life. You will create your life as if it is a part of this greatness. You're a link in the chain. You're not just an individual. And I didn't like to read. (laughs) I didn't like to read. You're active on Twitter now. And I saw a recent shout out to Marcus Books. I'll make sure we link to it in the show notes. I I bet they ship, right? (laughs) Yeah, they ship. (laughs) Okay, good, good. Well, your first foray into the professional world was through art. And you, you spent some time on tour. You toured with some pretty big names. And that was a way to to channel some of this angst that you you grew up with. Uh, tell me about the power of art in in shaping your interpretation of the world and your ability to to actually be an agent in it. Yeah, well, art is magic and art is medicine. And art can be a huge tool and it could also be a huge weapon. You know, it could be a tool to build. It could be a weapon to destroy other people as well as yourself. And, you know, growing up, like part of that education was understanding how Black people have used art and used song and the healing powers of song to where when your child is sold and you're never going to see them again, they will wonder why this person is out in the fields singing. They're draining themselves of the poison and trying to let some light in. So there are healing properties when it comes to music and when it comes to song in general. And a lot of the art in West Africa isn't art as we know it in the modern world and in the West. Like all these art pieces had a a, a purpose. These masks were worn during ceremonies. These pots uh, held the essence of an idea of a force of God. You know, and to us, it's a beautiful pot and we have it in a museum, but it had a very specific purpose. It was a part of their lives and they interacted with it on a daily basis. And they grew up in that. I recently went to Nigeria and uh, a man that I was speaking to, he said each family has its own oriki. And an oriki is basically a poem that you sing and it has the history of your family line. (laughs) Ken, it has the history of your family line. So he said, You know, as a kid, I would come home and if I got straight A's, you know, my parents might sing the Oriki to me. And it's talking about my great grandfather's accomplishments and my great grandmother was the first to do this. And it's a poem that you sing and they're singing this to you. And the whole time you're just thinking, God, what if I can do something great enough to be in this poem, to be in this Oriki? So, you know, 100 years from now, grandchildren, great grandchildren, would be listening to my accomplishments. 
So that's an amazing medicine. That's an amazing motivation. And, you know, to go from that to a song on the radio, just being something that you get drunk and dance to, it's like, you know, there's a disconnect. So there are a number of things that have been lost as far as uh, art is concerned, but there are a number of things to still continue on. And sometimes we'll put that song on and you and I both will put that song on. And within the first five seconds, we're getting really emotional and we might shed a tear. And, it, it, and it's not just because of the music, but it's because there was something inside of us that needed to get out. And this music is allowing us to open the door to whatever part of our brain needs to be open in order to let that that energy out. So I put a lot of my energy into the music, you know, and I and I, I toured around and I was I guess I was exercising that magic and and being a continuation of that. But it also has limitations because you're limited to the people that you can reach and the people that actually want to listen to you. And then even then you have the power of influence. And it's a great power of influence, but you don't have the power of deciding what people do. You don't have the power of controlling people's actions and holding people accountable for certain things. In addition to the power of art to be emotionally evocative, you've written about hip hop in particular as a, a way to create an economy. And I'm pulling this off of your Twitter feed. You wrote, hip hop is a miracle of people that were shut out of America's economy figured out a way to make a living off of words and swag, and it became the biggest cultural impact in the world. That's art not just driving uh, emotion and, and a message, but creating a whole new economy for, as you put it, people that were shut out. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now you have managers, you have uh, lighting guys, you have the guy shining the light on the artist. He's making money. You have the, you know, the the tour bus companies, whereas before they would only service, you know, rock tours or I mean, you have these artists in, in New York that started hip hop. The music programs were shut, were uh, discontinued. So they weren't learning music in school. So then they went and took their turntables and put the records on the turntables and they made music out of the turntables. They started mixing different records together. And going back to just the good part of the song and playing that over and over and over again. And the DJ is talking over the microphone to the people that are dancing and hyping them up. So it's like you could, they, from just from words and partying, from being disadvantaged in a way that the music programs are out of the schools and applying their creativity to the creation of music, creating music out of records that already existed and, 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 and forming something that didn't exist before. I mean, that's brilliant in itself. And then everything that came around it that filled in those gaps that were no longer there. There were a number of people after the civil rights movement, they were in position to then go to college and then get good jobs and then get into the economy. But there was also a large demographic of people that weren't in that position and they were locked out. They were in the projects. They didn't have any prospects. Uh, Their schools were underfunded or not funded at all. And, you know, they were able to then access this new music, this hip hop, whereas if they wouldn't have been able to put words together over this beat and then create a a revenue stream that's making millions of dollars a year so they could hire their uncles and cousins and lift other people up in the community, if they weren't doing that, then they would probably be breaking into your house or they would be, you know, robbing someone else or, or selling drugs. And going on tour with Snoop, I went on tour with Snoop Dogg and 
he might have had 15 people on tour with him. In his security detail, three of them were his uncles. His uncles. He's like Vietnam veterans. These are older guys. You know, one was a Vietnam veteran. You know, but three of them were his own. He's clearly just hiring people from the community. His head of security was a guy that had done a lot of time in the penitentiary, probably couldn't get a job anywhere else. But now he's touring the world with Snoop Dogg. So, yeah, it's an amazing tool. And it went from being this fad type thing that MTV wouldn't even play to now you can't even sell a Ford or a Chrysler without having some hip hop in the commercial, without having that music in the commercial. It's worldwide. It's worldwide. Wasn't one of your songs the anthem for one of the Winter Olympics? Yeah, yeah, it's Someday. Yeah, my band Flipside. Yeah, it was called Someday, and it's produced by Michael Urbano and Ray Peter. I believe it was our first single off of Interscope Records. And we did the commercial with Olympians, Apollo Ono, Michelle Kwan. We're in the ice rink. I was freezing. <laughs> We're on the ice. I'm rapping on the ice. My feet are frozen stiff. But that was a good song. It was Anthem for the Winter Olympics. We performed it on Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien. We had a good run with that song. I think most Americans' familiarity with hip-hop is just the end product. It's it's the music. How important do you think it is to understand the roots of it, how organic it was? That And i got to be honest with you, my understanding of it have has expanded in just this conversation with your describing the cancellation of, of music programs and the community figuring out a way to adapt. That seems as important as the music itself. It is. It's as important as the music itself. And a lot of times when we study history, you know, we study the hard facts around politics and economics, but I mean, equally important, if not more important, are the emotions of the people because emotions precede action and even thought sometimes. And sometimes thought precedes emotion, but they definitely work together. So whoever has the heart of the country, whoever's making the country dance and giving the country medicine to you know relieve its stresses, like we're very stressed out right now coming out of this coronavirus, uh, this, this uh, lockdown and all this political strife, the deep divisions in the country, you know, who's moving people right now? What are people listening to? How do people feel? I believe that's equally important as, you know, the politics and the economics of what's going on. Yeah, so I think they should learn it. I just wrote that down. Whoever's making the the country dance, I think that might be uh, our topper for this show because you're right. Do you remember the moment when, I mean, you've got this this incredibly successful creative career, it's got to be incredibly rewarding. And you make the decision, it sounds like, with your wife to go through the police academy. What was that conversation like? <laughs> okay, well, so it, I didn't go from the top of the world to into the police academy. There was a lot of internal strife in the band, and one of our band members had gotten on drugs. So there was a period of two or three years with me basically carrying the band. Like I recorded like 50 songs by myself, just shots in the dark because we weren't rehearsing. Like we had gone a year and a half without rehearsing. He was on drugs. I'm picking picking him up, getting him a hotel room, trying to just trying to do what I can. And, you know, I'm not perfect. None of us are, but I, I did try to be there uh, for him. And 
it just got harder and harder. And while that's going on, people are dying around us. Uh, my younger cousin, who uh, you know, we looked at each other as brothers. His mother passed away when he was five, and he moved in with us. You know, he died in a motorcycle accident coming back from one of our shows. My brother-in-law, who was a, a sergeant in the Army uh, Special Forces, he ended up taking his own life in 2008. Uh, he campaigned really hard for uh, Obama, and and he took his life a month before he got elected. He just he couldn't stick around any longer. You know, I had a, a a second son. I had two children. My son was, you know, a baby when you know we're at the gas station and I hear shots ring out and people screaming down the street. And I go out and I see a cop standing in the middle of the street with his gun drawn, and I see a a, a black man lying face down. That was Gary King Jr. And you know, I left the gas station. I have my son in my arms, and I'm walking down there and. You know, people are screaming, cops are coming, they're pushing people back. Gary King Jr.'s brother, little brother, is arguing with the police. I back him up. I'm like, you know, they don't let them take two brothers in one day. You know, I don't know what else to say. I got my baby in my arm. So a lot of things were were going on. A lot of things were happening. And, you know, ultimately, one of the 50 songs that I recorded ended up being a hit in, in like uh, in Europe. So the band was allowed to tour again and we had another opportunity, but you know, the drugs just kept pulling us down. So it just got to a point where I I had to consider what am I doing? What impact am I making? Like, what am I really doing with my life? And, you know, my mother's voice is in the back of my head. I listen to a lot of motivational speakers. You know, it's about taking control of your destiny. It's about deciding what you want to happen and then working to make that happen. What do I want? And I wake up in the morning one morning and I look at the news and Oscar Grant gets shot in the back on the bar platform at the Fruitvale Bar Station in Oakland. And when I saw it happen, you know, tears just came to my eyes because I couldn't believe it. Like I was just watching this act of of a life being taken and it wasn't happening in a vacuum. It was happening alongside of everything else that was happening in my life. And everything else that had happened in the country and everything that I've read about our history and the residual effects from it and, and what I see going on day to day. And I, I wasn't the type to go to a bunch of protests. I was always trying to figure out what I can do myself, what I can control myself to make an impact. But I had to go to that protest because I didn't know what else to do. And my wife and I and sons and, and a close friend, we went. And while we were there, you know, there were thousands of people there. They were all different races and everyone there was passionate and I could feel the love there. And I could also feel the anger. What did we hope to accomplish? I asked people, you know, what do we want to accomplish? We want to get rid of this cop. You know, some people wanted to get rid of all cops. And, you know, as I considered, okay, well, at that time, it's 2009, be a miracle if you could get a cop fired. <laughs> be a miracle, right? But let's say we did. Let's say we got rid of that cop. Who was going to replace him? Because somebody would. And I couldn't imagine any of the thousands of people at that protest replacing that cop. Any of the thousands of people that felt justice so strongly in their hearts, they came out and were passionate about change. I couldn't imagine any of them replacing that cop. And I couldn't imagine myself replacing that cop either. And there's a journalist at the protest, and he had a circle of artists together. And he's asking us what we could do to stop this from happening. 
I was objectively the most successful artist in the circle. It's touring the world. We had Sunday night football. We're featured in movies. Our music is featured in movies. And I knew that there was nothing that I was doing that can control that cop's actions. And again and again, people just kept saying, we have to keep doing what we've been doing. Just keep making more music, keep getting the word out. I was at a crossroads. And I just, I came home and I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I talked to my wife. She didn't like the idea. I talked to my mother. She didn't like the idea. And this is a a light way of me putting it. (laughs) They didn't like the idea. I think I heard you say once that your mother was terrified. Yeah. Yeah, she was terrified because she knew the mood of the country and she knew where we were in time. And she knew that I would be in danger how big of a step I was taking. Someone could kill me just because I had on the uniform and not know my heart, not know my mind, not know why I was doing it, not know the sacrifices I was making. So she was aware of all that. Can you talk about those sacrifices? Because I I just, it's incredibly valuable to have someone like you on share what a day in the life of a police officer in America is like, especially in a large city like Oakland. What's, what's being a, a, a beat cop, a deputy sheriff in your area like? Right. So we were mainly in a San Lorenzo, San Leandro area. It's the next city over from Oakland. It's the uh, Alameda County Sheriff's Office. I think it's about 14 cities. And I wasn't on patrol. I was a part of a community policing unit. I helped to start a community policing unit. After I had written a play about law enforcement in the community, a very, very, very brave (laughs) lieutenant in the sheriff's office approached me and he said, I want you to help me build this unit. So going out, first of all, you talk about sacrifices. A former friend told me the moment you put on that uniform, you'll never be able to record music again. No one will ever want to listen to what you say again. The moment you put on that uniform. And I I was still at a point in my life where I had to put it on anyway. I had to find out. I had to be the one that decided whether or not my friend Jahai gets shot and killed. I felt too safe standing on the sideline, rapping about it. I felt like that wasn't enough of of a sacrifice for me at that point in time in my life. I needed to do something deeper. So going into it, he said that to me when I was in the academy. He said, the moment you put on the uniform, it's over. You'll never be able to rap again. Of course, I ignored him and continued, but there was some validity to his statement because just putting on that uniform, I would still be the same person. But when I interact with people from the community, everything I said would be filtered through the uniform. I may say the same exact thing that I said a year or two before, but whatever I said was now filtered through the uniform. And it's an amazing effect, and I'm not doing it justice and trying to explain it right now, but it's something that I was completely conscious of. And then being a rapper and knowing the power of spontaneity and honesty in delivering a message through song form, I continued that into law enforcement because I felt as if I stepped back to try to construct a message that would be manipulative. That would be misleading when I'm speaking to the people. So I chose to continue to speak from the heart. And that might not have been the smartest thing because now I'm not just a regular person 
I'm not just a rapper speaking. I'm a person that now has concrete power to take someone's life, to suspend someone's rights and take them to jail, put them in jail. I can I have the concrete power to move someone from A to B. So my words aren't being considered as a rapper's words. They're being considered more like a politician's words. Someone that has to choose his words extremely carefully. So you talked about the sacrifices. These are some of the sacrifices. I could no longer, uh, and these are things that I found out along the way. It was better if I stayed away from the movements because of, you know, the history of COINTELPRO infiltrating the movements. Just my presence would have to make people wonder, is he trying to infiltrate these movements? And then even worse than that, if I did continue to come around the movement and help plan and, you know, help execute, would they then lower their guard around other officers or former officers who are, in fact, trying to infiltrate the movement? I had to consider all these things that I'd never had to consider before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. I heard you say this recently. You said, when you're a cop, you see what America's afraid of. And it makes me think of something my friends who are LEOs have said, which is that when you spend every waking minute looking for bad guys, you reach a point in your life where everyone you encounter is a bad guy. And it changes the way. Because it's easier. Because yeah, it's just easier. Yeah, speak speak to that. It's easier. So, all right, first of all, in the academy, and I'm going to, this is, a, this is a, a huge summary, but you learn that, for instance, an action is always faster than a reaction, right? And, you know, they tell you it takes about 0.75 seconds to determine someone has pulled a weapon or if you're following a car, it takes about 0.75 seconds to recognize that he put on his brake lights. Then another 0.75 seconds to decide what to do about it and tell the body to do it. So that's about a 1.5 second lag time. Average human can fire several rounds in a second. So you, we, we would do drills where they would put the gun on the table, you know, and you put your hand here and they put their hand above yours. And they say, you move when I move. And they'd always be able to grab the gun because the action is faster than the reaction. And then you're watching these videos of cops getting killed and gangbangers killing each other, you know, and they ask you, okay, so why is that cop dead? He's dead because his gun leg wasn't back. He didn't have his right leg back. He's dead because he allowed that person to keep his hands in his pockets. 
you know, he's dead because he didn't check his shoulder. He didn't put out over the radio where he was. And, you know, it's this merciless judging because it's a life or death situation. And you can go through 10,000 traffic stops and then the next one be in broad daylight, 2 p.m. on a crowded street. And that's the one where you get shot in the head. Like all these things are like, this is fact. This can happen. Right. So and then you have the, the sheepdog wolf sheep philosophy. I believe that's Lieutenant David Grossman, you know, where, you know, there are sheepdogs who protect the sheep. There are the sheep that would prefer to never think about the wolf. And they don't like the sheepdog because the sheepdog has sharp teeth like the wolf <laughs> and he's bossy like the wolf. And then you have the wolf that will completely tear them to pieces. And the only time the sheep respect the sheepdog is when the wolf shows up. Then a whole flock of sheep will hide behind one sheepdog. So you have that dynamic. So you begin to desensitize yourself to criticisms by the sheep because you know that they respect you and follow your lead when they need you. But when they feel they no longer need you, the be- their behavior towards you changes. So there are all these different dynamics. And then you show up on scene and you have to consider that it becomes very apparent that there's a disproportionate number of Black people that get labeled as suspects by citizens and law enforcement alike. So you show up on the scene, some woman, I believe this guy is casing my house. He's going to break in. You show up on the scene. He's just arguing with his girlfriend on the phone in front of her house, you know? And you could all, if you listen to radio traffic, you can hear an experienced cop and you'll know what the call was about just by listening to the radio. The cop is like, okay, I'm on scene. I have eyes on the subject making contact. And 10, 15 seconds go by. You could cancel this call. Send me the next one. You know, it's, it's a false call. It's, <laughs> it was something that the, the person that called the police was afraid of something that they didn't need to be afraid of. And that happens every day. That happens all the time. And when you have an experienced police officer, they know how to deal with that, right? But then you have the ones that are not culturally aware and they don't understand uh, this dynamic and they don't understand the frustrations that the people will have. They constantly get the police called on them. So when those people react in a way that's aggressive, then they tend to view that as guilty behavior. And some academy teachers even teach you that. You know, if a person is not going along with with the program, then chances are they're guilty. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but we can't just count on experience and the the supply of experienced officers to reassure us in situations like this, because it just takes too long. There has to be a systemic way. It has to work itself into the training uh, so that younger cops are prepared so they have those cultural sensitivities. We have to get folks like David Grossman out of the academy, someone who incidentally never spent a minute in combat, but is, you know, famous for writing his book on killing. Right. Tell me about the other approach, the the community capitals policing program that you were so instrumental in. There are other ways for law enforcement and communities to interact? Oh, definitely. So uh, Marty Neiderford, he was a lieutenant at the time. I believe he's a captain now. And he was the architect of the program. And it's just, it's founded on the idea that, you know, uh, law enforcement and the community have to work together or nothing's going to get done. The way that you solve the majority of the crimes is if the people are telling you. 
of what happened and who did it. But he wanted to go a step beyond that to taking preventative measures. What are the circumstances that create crime in a community? And let's address those. And then maybe we could drive down the crime in the area by doing that. And we could build bridges between law enforcement and the community. Now, initially, when I came into law enforcement, I just came in so I could be the one deciding that my friend Jihad doesn't get killed. I could be the one to deciding to treat someone like a human being as opposed to talking to them like dirt, like I watched a cop talk to my mother one time. You know, at court, I'm still affected by it. But we would get out there and Nidifer would create these situations in which we could get to know the community, where we could, you know, train the kids instead of, you know, kids get into a fight at school or get into a fight on the streets, as opposed to arresting a kid and taking them to juvenile hall, maybe we could refer them to our boxing program. So something that they've actually become good at fighting or a way that they could relieve stress fighting, they actually now get rewarded for it and they get disciplined and, you know, they actually have less fights because they're getting that energy out of them in the ring. So he put these programs together and we tried to identify the other deputies within the sheriff's office that would thrive in a setting like that. And, and we got a few of them and we just worked hard. And, you know, they were great guys, uh, great women, and they just worked hard to build bridges and, and to serve and to try to uh, uh, reach people and address their problems, the problems that would lead to those people creating crime before they even considered to commit the crime itself. You've now got a police drama that's been picked up by BET. You're back in into your creative sphere. Tell us what that show is about and what it's like to be a creator again, having spent eight years on, on the other side of the line. Yeah, these are very good questions. And I'm rambling a little bit, so I apologize for that. But that show is is based on my experiences and just based on my realizations, you know, in law enforcement, coming from where I come from. So I can't call it autobiographical, you know, but it does feel amazing to be able to write this out because it's what's missing from from entertainment. When when you see police dramas on TV, they're one-sided. It's like it's pro-cop or it's anti-cop and no one really gets into the nuances of, of what it's like to be in that uniform coming from the community and to really understand both sides and, and what they're facing. So we hope to do that with this TV series. And then as far as being on the creative side again, you know, I was I was creative while I was in law enforcement, but it was so stressful because it's like two opposite ends of, of the universe of philosophy. Like on one end, you know, as an artist, you close your eyes and you just channel the energy and <laughs> you, you know, channel your emotions. And on the other, if you close your eyes, you might end up dead. It's like you have to really focus on this guy's hands and know where all your partners are and be listening to the radio at all times. And, you know, you go from sitting in this meeting with parents in a school board to chasing down some suspect, it's you're completely out of the equation. And as an artist, you're you're the one that's in your front and center. So that was it was extremely stressful. But since then, since just being a creative, you know, the first part since I resigned was just remembering how to just be an artist. And I'm still remembering how to just be an artist. 
but I'm able to access a level levels deeper than I had before because I have a deeper respect for it now than I had before. Well, tell us the name of the show. We'll make sure to keep an eye out for it uh, and we'll post it once it finally goes up. Thank you. It's called The Line and it's uh, produced by Entertainment One, the Mark Gordon Company and BET. Awesome. Well, Shinho, it's been wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective and we're looking forward to The Line. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Shinho Piper Fajeta. You can find him on Twitter at PipeDreamsENT. That's P-I-P-E-D-R-E-A-M-Z-E-N-T. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. in Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.